brought to you by CGTN Europe. Hello and welcome to this week's Razor podcast. I'm Shanice O'Mara. And I'm Emma Keeling. Today on Razor, I look at how the animal kingdom has responded to the COVID-19 pandemic. I, I always say that the, the world's worst ever nuclear accident has done less damage to the ecosystem than, than people just going about their daily business. And I take a look at new testing technology that could help us in the fight against COVID-19. If our sensor can deliver this signal and you see how here the, the, the concentration of the virus in the air is very high. Now this week, Shinny, I'm introducing a new word. It's just a bit of English to go with the science, but don't worry, there is no math. Is there many letters? No, no, you'll be fine. In fact, you could probably use this in Scrabble, although they probably wouldn't let you. Some of you will have noticed more wildlife in your garden, parks, and even in urban areas. That's because of what scientists are calling the anthropause. That's the new word I was telling you about. Basically, the worldwide slowing down of human activity, which has led to many animals venturing further afield as we retreated inside. This sounds like a lovely, cuddly, fluffy story, Emma. It is. I am so pleased to say, although there is a dark side, but let's not, let's just stick with the cuddly, fluffy side. I think that's a good way to go. I agree. So lockdown has provided biologists with a chance to investigate animal behaviour without the pesky humans getting in the way. I spoke to Dr Christian Roots from the University of St Andrews to find out about the origins of the term anthropause. We came up with this term to describe the global lockdown period. We, we noticed that people started referring to the great pause, but we felt that a more specific term would be helpful. And we came up with, with anthropause to describe this global slowing in modern human activity. I should say it's a research opportunity that has uh, arisen through the most tragic circumstances. But we feel in in our team that it's an opportunity we can't afford to miss. Uh, For a very long time, uh, researchers have been interested in measuring the effect of human disturbance on animals, but they are usually uh, limited to looking at a few study sites. They can compare study sites perhaps that differ in human activity levels, like protected and unprotected areas. Or they can look at locations where human activity levels have changed over time. But the inferences they can draw from these uh, few sites are are quite limited. And the anthropos gives us a research opportunity to look at this on a truly global scale, because countries went into lockdown during roughly the same time period and imposed very similar restrictions. So we have these all important replicates across geographic regions and across animal species. So Christian and his team seem to be framing it as research and a research opportunity, but what exactly are they researching? It's the impact humans have on the way animals behave. So they're tracing animals, birds and even marine life to see what they do when we are not around. So the pandemic has presented a very rare moment where humans have been shut inside. And this has given animals more room to move around. I'm sure they'll be so sad now that lockdown's easing in many countries and now all the humans are let out again. So are they hoping that by tracking these animals, it's going to help with the conservation of these particular species? I mean, why are they tracking the movements of these animals in the first place? So what they're looking for is is new possible ways that humans and animals can coexist in a more beneficial way for all of us. So, for instance, you know, deer are very shy, um, but with a fewer with fewer humans around and less transport on the roads, they roam further. 
And if by tracking where they go, that might offer some insight for future building of roads. Maybe you know you stay clear of, of those those pathways that the deer are using. So researchers, what, what they're hoping for is it will give them more information so that they can advise urban planners and officials to help make better decisions. You know, Shanit, this idea of human absence being beneficial for nature is not new. Scientists found that after the Chernobyl disaster in 1986, when humans abandoned the surrounding areas, there were some really interesting patterns emerging surrounding animal behaviour. I spoke to Professor Jim Smith from the University of Portsmouth. Well, what what actually Belarusian and Ukrainian, so the exclusion zone, half of it is in Belarus and half of it is in Ukraine. Chernobyl, the site is in is on the border. Um, and, and just a few years after the accident, Belarusian and Ukrainian scientists noticed that the, the species associated with humans, so things like pigeons and rats, were disappearing because the humans had disappeared uh, and wild species were coming back so so we, we we expect to see some subtle effects of radiation in some of the hot spots in the exclusion zone we expect to see some subtle effects and, and we indeed we have seen some subtle effects but now th- 30 years on the radioactivity is more than 100 times lower than it was right after the accident and the wildlife seem to be coping very well and doing even better because the people aren't there I, I always say that the, the world's worst ever nuclear accident has done less damage to the ecosystem than than people just going about their daily business. So before the accident, obviously, there, there were people, there were two towns, there was a population of over 100,000 people. In, it's a huge area for, for Europe. It's a huge abandoned area. Um, it's, a, it's about 4,000 square kilometres. Um, and just before before the accident, people were doing what people do, which is to chop down trees and do forestry, do fishing, hunting, agriculture, all these things. Just humans occupying a space does enormous damage to an ecosystem, unfortunately. And, and the fact that there's residual radiation there doesn't seem to bother the populations of animals and plants. It's it's the benefit of not having us there anymore that, that's, that's caused a wildlife explosion. This is such a fascinating area of research. I mean, how long would we have to be in lockdown before we start to see wild animals in our streets? Yeah, so a little bit tricky to answer that one. But Professor Smith did say that it was only a few years after Chernobyl that wildlife started to come back. And that was with radiation. So what I take from that is that humans are worse for wildlife than a nuclear disaster, which I guess is quite a lot about the human race, really. But look, if we disappeared altogether, I doubt it would take long for wolves and bears, etc., to move in and get nice and comfortable. But if you look at what's happened in just a few months during lockdown, I mean, you know, I don't know if you've seen online, Shin, you know, people posting videos and photos of their surprise wildlife meetings. You know, animals are going to come out when they're not threatened and when the coast is clear. So the longer we stay away, the braver they'll become. I mean, it's a little bit like teenagers, I guess, you know, when parents go away for the weekend, but with far less damage caused. I mean, do you think we'll learn anything from lockdown that maybe we can actually coexist with animals rather than destroying their homes? I'd like to think that the pause has maybe created a greater awareness, you know, we've actually stopped and been more appreciative of nature. I, I certainly have. Uh, it sort of reminded me of what I miss out on when I'm on, you know, trains and buses and in the car all the time. And I'd like to think that our priorities might have changed and that we're placing a greater importance on what really matters. And that hopefully that might include, you know, other living things as well. 
But yeah, as I said, there are billions of us on this planet. We all need to make a living. We need to eat. We all need to live somewhere. It's getting really crowded. I think one of the only things that might make a big difference is if governments can make the pandemic recovery a green, sustainable one. And then hopefully that would benefit every living thing on the planet, not just us. Emma, tell me about Professor Jim Smith, because you seem to have a really fascinating discussion with him. Yeah, well, I mean, the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, it's, you know, humans can't really go go and live there. The radiation is, is not great. And, you know, so many things have, have died. But the animals are coming back. They're not seeing those mutations that they saw sort of in the in those early days in, in some of the animals and and the animals are really flourishing i what i found really fascinating is is that you know it was the the animals that that humans had a lot of contact with like you know pigeons and rats they were the ones that disappeared um but it was the the wild animals they were the ones that you know started to flourish even really rare sightings things that they hadn't really seen suddenly came back into the area again. So it's, yeah, it's, I, I think it's just amazing. Just if you take humans out of the equation, it's amazing how well everything else does, Jenny. So have you noticed any increase in animal sightings where you live? I am a little bit city-centric in London. So uh, no, unfortunately, I have not seen deer roaming around. Uh, I've seen a lot of bird life in my little garden. And I do know that the foxes are out in force because they keep leaving nasty little presents uh, that are far too close to my courgette plant. Um, but that's about <laughs> that's about all I can tell you. I think maybe a little bit further afield. Certainly the the, the ducklings and the geese, et cetera, are doing very well in, in the park. But, uh, yeah, I see, I haven't tracked them. If I'd tracked them, Shinny, and maybe I need to do that from now on, then I could give you a better answer. What about you? Have you seen anything? Well, first of all, it sounds like your courgettes are getting really well fertilized. <laughs> I, I am still wanting those courgette fritters. But yeah, I haven't seen much because I haven't been out. But when I have been out, I must say I have spotted more foxes. And I've noticed that the birds have been singing louder. Um, and maybe that's just because the traffic noise has gone down. Um, but, you know, in terms of actual sightings... Definitely not. But then again, I also live in London, so it's not really an attractive environment for anything wild. Do you know another thing that has come up, actually, is that people have had time during lockdown to actually care about the animals that may be in their gardens. So, you know, I've noticed more people have been putting more food out for the birds and just caring a bit more about nature, which is, you know, probably a more sort of uh, general appreciation of the world around us as a result of being confined. In the, in the local park where, where I live, there's a, a pond. And, um, you know, as I mentioned, the, the swans and the, and the ducks before. But what I'm noticing is that, you know, when you go for a walk around there, you'll often see people stopping and staring and looking at the ducklings and looking at the, at the goslings. And, and it's obvious that they're, they're, they're now tracking them. Oh, look how much bigger they've got. Oh, look at those fluffy mm. ones. Oh, wow, they've got lots of them there. Oh, they've only got two. Oh, I hope the carp don't eat them, that kind of stuff. And it's really lovely. So people are sort of paying it. They're, they're doing their own little tracking of, of, of local wildlife and, and really taking an interest. It's lovely. Teams around the world are working on technology that could assist in the detection of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, 
Early detection will be an additional tool to slow down infection rates and prevent a second spike before a vaccine is found. In Switzerland, a team led by Professor Jing Wang has been working to create a biosensor that will be able to detect coronavirus in the air. It sounds clever and very complicated. How does it work? We developed the biosensor trying to detect the the coronavirus. Basically, the idea is that uh, the coronavirus, as we know, it's uh, enveloped RNA virus. So, you know, the diagnosis of COVID-19 is basically trying to measure this uh, RNA with the PCR, so polymerase chain reaction. And uh, we are trying to do the similar uh, detection with this RNA, but we are using a different method. So with this method, basically we have uh, on this plasmonic-based sensor, then we have a functional group. This functional group is connected to the gold sensing element. And then this functional group is basically the, the matching DNA structure of the RNA. So once this hybridization of the DNA and RNA occurs, and then it causes a signal. And then this signal is detected by our plasmonic sensor. Well, I think it's going to be really useful eventually once this technology is up and running to find out the concentrations of the virus in crowded spaces. Because right now we've got all kinds of tests to test whether certain individuals are spreading the virus or whether they've got, you know, whether they're whether they are posing a risk. But what we don't have, which is why this technology is so interesting, is a sensor that can tell us whether large numbers of people congregating is safe or not, based on detecting the concentration of the virus in the air. But rather than hear the explanation from me, let's hear from Professor Jing Wang. We hope that the sensor can contribute to the studies of the transmission routes. And obviously, this is also will be useful for uh, early early warning, right? So so if you go to a certain location, go to a train station, for example, you, you go to somewhere where you could have a lot of people, and then if if our sensor can deliver this signal, and you see how here the, the, the concentration of the virus in the air is very high, so so obviously you need to be careful. You try to avoid this uh, this space, or you need to put on your your best respirators for this space uh, or to avoid this space at all. Or you say, okay, right now uh, the concentration is high. I Can I use the certain, certain methods, for example, high ventilation rate or uh, the other methods, UV light to kill the bacteria, to kill the virus, something like that, to achieve the, the disinfection and uh, to avoid the infection. All right, so in South Africa, they're trialing a breathalyzer test for COVID-19, also very clever. So how would this be different? Well, you know, there are so many tests around and being developed at breakneck speed uh, because time is of the essence. But this test is completely different in that it's nothing to do with individuals. Um, This virus can't survive without a host. So a lot of the tests that are actually... Um, used on people are essential for identifying the hosts of this virus. But this test looks at the virus that is transmitted in air. 
So it's specifically looking for concentrations of the virus in air, not people. So if we look at an example, say, you know, if I walk onto a train, uh, there would be a way of detecting how much COVID-19 there is floating around. In theory, yeah. And how useful would that be, actually? Because I think what has been most baffling about this pandemic is not really knowing what's high risk and what isn't. I mean, we can all keep ourselves isolated, but if one person has been to a place where lots of people have gathered, it means that all of us are at risk and, you know, the growth is exponential. And so to really identify and sort of reduce the risk by having these sensors in places where we will inevitably have to gather, because, I mean, life will have to carry on as usual and we will have to meet others and gathering crowds, I think this sensor will be so useful, particularly on public transport, events, concerts, theatres. I mean, none of those places can really open anytime soon, even though we're easing out of lockdown. So I think a sensor like this will be so crucial. I Look, I just love this, this whole sensor thing, because it, to me, to feel comfortable and, you know, walking around outside or, or being in a shop or whatever, to, to know that, you know, the air that I'm breathing is okay, uh, because, you know, we don't know how the, the virus affects all of us, everybody, every one of us is different. Although <laughs> it could be a bit of a weird situation, you know, you walk in a shop and then suddenly the lights start flashing and it's saying, you know, get out, get out, you've got COVID in here, that could cause a few issues. I think what I like about what's going on at the moment is that I think there's a lot of science that's going on that there people are actually following through. The the discussions I've had with scientists about SARS, you know, they sort of said, well, SARS sort of died away and and, um, and so all the government said, oh, good, we don't have to do anything. So all the funding was taken away. And so there was a lot of things that they were working on that they never really were able to follow through on. But hopefully, you know, they've, they've learned their lesson this time and, and, and so that, you know, a lot of the scientists developing all these wondrous things, you know, will be able to take them right through to the end. So that's it for another edition of Razor. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to see the videos from some of these stories, go to CGTN Europe and type in Razor. Until next time, bye.